Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here with my extremely fabulous co-host, Ms. Carrie Plitt, mm. down the line from Oxford. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Hi. I'm better for you introducing me in that spectacular <laughs> way. I'm good. I'm, I'm uh, vibing with the world today, I have to say, and I'm happy to be here with you. That is an excellent way to feel. <laughs> How are you? I am croaky. <laughs> I've had another um, virus, which is annoying, but uh, I think I'm coming through it, which is good. And I think you're in the sexy phase oh, of the croakiness. That's nice. That's yeah, good. I'm enjoying it. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 23 waiting for you there. The most recent one is about sleep, which we really enjoy talking about, and have the chance to suggest themes. That's right. And the sleep episode was suggested by our patron, Amy. Patrons, thank you as ever for your wonderful continued support. It is the reason we can continue making the show. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is really so important for us, the Patreon. And I just want to say, if you want to give yourself a New Year's gift, just sidle on over to our Patreon page and sign up. It's, That's a great it's not a big commitment and we love our patrons. We do. So anyway, back to Minnesota 35. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is for the next half hour or so, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. That's right. And our theme this month is heavily influenced by the time of year because the winter months are full of different feast days and celebrations. And generally, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, a time where you just want to cocoon inside and feel warm and cozy and nurtured. So we thought we would talk about food and feasting in all kinds of literature. Yes. I like how you always think of our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. It's very um, thoughtful of you. I would really enjoy to be with them right now. It's <laughs> partly because I want to be in the Southern Hemisphere at most times. But yeah, uh, shout out to all our Aussie friends um, yeah. and, and everybody else south of the equator. We love you. We do. Anyway, when I think about good food writing, I get excited actually because I think of it as one of the body genres. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a kind of writing that can speak completely sort of directly to the body like you know goosebumps and hairs stand on end when you read a horror story or good sex writing like arouses the body separately or like in tandem with the mind right but like I feel like the body genres are truly kind of alchemical experiences of reading because your response is not just intellectual it's not just located in the mind and really good food writing makes you hungry. It makes your mouth water. It makes you salivate. Like it really, really speaks to your body. And that is something I find exciting about it and, and mm. like enriching about it. And I'm sure if I were more inclined towards cooking generally, then I would get a real kick out of immediately trying to make the dish that I've just read about. But unfortunately, my relationship to cooking is a work in progress, which we will get to later. Um, so that's not actually something that I do. But, you know, my idealized version of myself reads about some divine feast and is like, okay, now I need to go and make um, some, you know, Korean stew because I've just read this incredible scene about it and all of that. But anyway, before we get to that, Carrie, let's start with fiction. 
do you like reading about food in novels? I do. I love that idea of a body genre. And I think that's so right, but I hadn't really thought about it in that way. And I was thinking about that in the context of whether I like reading about food in novels, because my immediate response to that was yes. And I think it's because good food writing evokes a real bodily response in me. It's not just reading about what something looks like. It's like feeling and tasting and smelling. And, you know, food is so evocative. So we've all had versions of Proust Madeline. You know, we all understand that food is so much more than itself. Um, And also I love food. So yes, I love when food is described in novels. And that can be, you know, good or bad foods. So you know, I think disgust is such a strong emotion. And that is something that so often authors have used when they're describing food. I'm thinking about like Miss Havisham's Rotting Table and Great Expectations, or for that matter, The Gruel and Oliver Twist, you know. Yes. Dickens was great at gross out food. Oh my God, such classics of the genre, (laughs) Carrie Plitt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also, you know, really delicious food. Like, Like Little Women has so many great feasts and they're always making pies and things like that. Or even Little House on the Prairie. I guess those are two children's books, but two books I really remember still the feeling that I had when I read the descriptions of food in those novels. Oh my God. Yeah. And also thinking about gross out food, I'm thinking about Roald Dahl's books. Yes. Right. And like the giants and all the weird food they eat and different like Boris Bogtrotter with his massive chocolate cake and yeah, so much evocative stuff with food and food in childhood, of course. Yeah. It's, and maybe it's because food, you know, our taste buds are literally different when we're children. So food is so much more meaningful. You you love the things that you love and you really, really hate the things that you hate. You just feel you have such intense reactions to food when you're a kid. So maybe that's part of it too. Right. Like stuff is like literally intolerable. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was a very picky eater, so I definitely felt that. But it's, it's interesting. So this does not extend to when people actually include recipes or very detailed descriptions of people making food in Uh. novels. (laughs) Um, And probably because like you, or like you have implied, I'm not much of a cook myself. And I'll give you an example of this. This is why I was thinking of this. I just read Heartburn by Nora Ephron, which so many people I know it's their favorite book. And I have to say, I was quite disappointed by it for a number of reasons, which Ooh, maybe one day we'll talk about. Sick I was. Burn. I was. But one of the things that I didn't like about it was the protagonist of the novel is a cookbook author. And one of the kind of gimmicks that happens throughout is that she'll kind of pause and say like, then I made my famous chicken recipe and she'll kind of tell you about how she makes the chicken or how she makes the omelet or something. And I just completely zoned out during this. <laughs> I did not enjoy it at all. That makes me love so much. I have never read that book, so who knows, but I imagine I would feel very similar. I don't think you would enjoy it, I have to say. No, I mean, recipes are not exciting to me to read. They feel like, they make me feel stressed basically because I, and bored, stressed and bored at the same time, which is quite interesting. And I think also when I come across recipes in books, it tends to tap into this, like, I don't know, this kind of wellspring of bad feeling because I know I'm never going to try making them, but I feel (laughs) like I should. (laughs) So I get this kind of weird reaction to them, which I mean, this says a lot about my very personal psychological state. And I can totally see how if you 
are a real foodie and someone who gets a lot of pleasure and relaxation from cooking, then reading recipes must be so exciting and enlivening and like taps into your hobby and your, your, what makes you feel capable and, and, um, and, and something that you do for pleasure. Right. But when cooking feels like a chore or something that you're not very engaged with, it just feels quite stressful. And I feel like maybe again, it's easy if you actually genuinely don't care um, and you can just be like, cool, that's something that other people do that I'm not interested in. So I can read about it with like a forensic interest, but I, I, it doesn't reflect on me. But I think for me, I straddle the boundary of that's not my hobby or my interest. So fine, you do you. But also, oh, that should be my interest. Oh God, yeah. You know? I'm, so, I'm so like you in that way. I'm like, yeah. I really should be someone who loves cooking elaborate meals. Right. Like I should be because that's how you live well. Yes. And if you don't do that, then you're not living well. Or also I find recently a stick I beat myself with about it is like, you know, I'm I I I am a person who thinks a lot about the politics of things and I try to make choices based around my personal kind of political sense of things. But food is an area where I can't reconcile that very easily for myself. Like I try to be mindful of waste, but also I am a convenience food person a lot of the time because I can't be asked to cook or I don't want to, or, and I get tangled up in the politics of feminism and cooking and some not very flexible, not very helpful ideas that I internalized when I was really young about at all costs, not being a woman who ends up in the kitchen, you know? Um, and then mm. it sends me into a spiral of kind of intellectual debate within myself and self-criticism. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course I'm hungry and it's late <laughs> and I buy a sandwich. <laughs> so, you know, but I think when food is used well in novels, ah, oh, it's exquisite because it can be such a sensual experience to read about. And I think it can connect you in such a direct way to the sensuality of the characters. I think that's what novels can do. They can remind you of your body. They can remind you of your own sensuality as well, which is like a gift especially if you are someone who has a tendency, like I do, to kind of forget that you exist below the neck when you're in the work work frame of mind. Um, mm. But also, of course, like in a novel, the way that characters relate to food can tell you so much about them. Do they eat with gusto? Do they eat with disgust? Do they have an appetite or not? Like, are they pushy with food? Are they controlling with food? Are they generous? Um, and of course, meals are like the best kind of literary device for bringing loads of different characters together with a, a focal point, right? Which is very useful um, technically for a writer. But I also think that any writing, and I mean this to be fiction and nonfiction, that denies the body is really strange and jarring. And if you have written a book about characters, whether it's memoir or, or fiction, and your characters at no point are eating or fucking, or there's no reference to the fact that these things happen in their lives, like it's weird because if you want to write about life, bodily realities are a part of life. Yeah, I would push back on that. I think there there are probably really brilliant cerebral novels that don't engage with the body, but they're just a different kind of novel, right? Yeah, but I think that I find that problematic because it feels like an old-fashioned separation between mind and body that I like people to work against. And this idea that you can't write about sensuality and cerebral things in the same breath. You know what I yeah. mean? Like I kind of... But don't you think maybe you're setting out a parameter that you're you're not allowed just to write novels set in the mind? No, because I think the mind is still connected to a body that needs to eat. Like you don't necessarily have to go into it in depth, but I think, I just think it's strange. I think it's strange 
to not include certain parts of human experience, even if you're doing it in a cerebral way. Fair enough. I feel like we, I wish we had examples for this, but I have I know. literally none. <laughs> I know. Well, let's get, let's get on to the next question then. What does really good food writing, what does really good writing about food actually do in fiction? Yeah. So I think it's some of what you were talking about before. You can tell so much about a character from how they interact with food and what they do with food. Um, and uh, the example that came to mind for me, again, a children's book is Narnia and Turkish Delight. And Turkish oh, Delight yeah. is so central in that book. You know, it's it, it's obviously in those books tied up with ideas of like sin and Christianity, which I maybe think are a little suspect but it's so evocative and it's evocative because it's a sweet, it's evocative because Edmund chooses to eat it and that says something about him. So food is such an easy stand-in in some ways. And I think there are also ways to, like the best novels, break down the ideas that we have inherited or internalized about food and kind of question them and, and needle at them. And I think there there's been some really interesting books, like this book called The Middlesteens recently that have done that. But I think really good food writing has to evoke the taste and the smell of the food. So it's not just a description of what food looks like or or just a mention of a pie. It's like how the pie was prepared and what it smells like and how it feels. Um, that's what really gets me going. That's what gets me excited. And that's what I think sticks with me. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? No, totally. I was thinking um, of Min Jin Lee's novel Pachinko, which has such vivid food writing and in so many different ways as well of what we've been talking about. Like she describes the food so vividly that it, you know, made my mouth water and she describes it with this kind of real precision, but it's also used as, uh, you know, a representation of wealth or the lack of it or a generous gift or um, someone's mean with it, and you really become aware in this novel of food as nurture, but also food as status at different points in the narrative. Because this is a book that you know spans um, several generations. It's about shifting social class, shifting status in lots of different ways, and of course, food as a commodity, but also actually as a marker of identity, is like really, really bound up in all of that. Bound up in a sense of family, bound up in a sense of belonging and in gender as well, which that book is also interrogating at every turn. So I think it, that's a really good example of a novel that uses food as like a cultural commentary, as well as a sensual element in the book that teaches you about the characters, but also teaches you about the world that she's describing, you know, which is the setting is kind of the Korean Japanese relationship at a particular time in history. And so there's also the tension between like Korean food and Japanese food in, in the book, which again, is just this phenomenal kind of shorthand for the bigger questions about identity that this, that the book is talking about. I read this uh, line in a piece in The Atlantic by Adrienne LaFrance, which sums it up so perfectly. She wrote, no other novel I've read recently so effortlessly makes meals appear both meager and luxurious. And I think that nails it. Oh, I really like that. And yeah, the food in that novel is so memorable too. You know, I'm still thinking about the bowls of like steaming noodles or yeah. the mushrooms that they go collecting in a really important scene yes. um, or the candy that they're selling by the side of the road. You know, it's it's so vivid. Yeah, completely. Can you think of any other examples from novels that you'd like, maybe food that you'd like to eat or like scenes with food that you would like to be in? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking about feasts. 
And as you said, meals are brilliant ways to get people together and have an interesting scene in fiction, um, but also just to engage with all of these symbols that food can represent. And I feel like the urtext for this, the thing that immediately came from mind is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Yeah. Charles Dickens again, but it is. Um, you love Dickens. <laughs> I don't even love Dickens. That's the weirdest <laughs> thing. But it's like, I think because his novels are so kind of nakedly about what they're about. Mm. Um, and also that because they have, they're trying to contain all of society. I mean, he was trying to write state of the nation novels. Right. And so there are these big sprawling things. You can find an example of almost anything in a Dickens novel because they're trying to contain everything about the society that he was living in in that day. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes, I do love A Christmas Carol, actually. And you have to think about the feast at the end of A Christmas Carol. And the food in this in this little novella is used so cleverly because we see how Scrooge's attitude towards food changes as the story goes on. You know, at the beginning, he goes home and he's eating this little block of cheese alone by himself, um, you know, like a foot taking small portions of it. <laughs> um, but then, of course, he learns about the meaning of Christmas and family and being nice and all of that stuff. And uh, he has the urchin by the prize turkey to share with the Cratchits in the end. And <laughs> <laughs> love would love to be there. Love a good turkey feast. Love Thanksgiving. Love Christmas, as our listeners will know. Just seems great. So yeah, that is, I can't talk about that. Talk, talk about meals and talk about food and literature and not talk about a Christmas carol. Um, and we were mentioning children's books and a lot of my examples were there. So like Roald Dahl, you said, did you ever read the Red Wall series by Brian no. Jakes? It's a fantasy series about these animals who live in a kingdom um, in this like abbey called Red Wall Abbey. And they're, they're constantly kind of fighting off intruders um, who are other animals. Um, and they have these elaborate feasts with all of these like special pies and wines and candied chestnuts and things Ooh. like that. It's so evocative. I loved those scenes when I was reading you know, them. That reminds me of The Wind in the Willows as well. There's a yes. great, great scenes with the weasels collecting um, blackberries. You ate it, didn't you? <laughs> he says to one of them, greedy ones with them all around his mouth. And Toad of Toad Hall, I think, was really grotesque with food, wasn't he? I don't know. I never really read Wind in the Willows. I saw the movies. Were oh man, movies? They, those were the books that were read to me when I was a kid. So I can remember my dad doing all the accents. <laughs> <laughs> the books were, that were read to me when I was a kid were The Little House on the Prairie books, which again had so much food in them. And the thing that I remember the most is there's a scene when, um, I can't remember which book it is, but they're living on a prairie or like by a lake somewhere in a cabin. And it snows and they make, um, make maple syrup candy by taking the maple syrup and laying it out on the snow and it kind of freezes and, and turns into a candy that you can eat. And wow. I forever tried to replicate that as a kid in the snow and it never worked. So. <laughs> such an adorable picture of young Carrie just pouring gallons of maple syrup onto the snow like wait what I tried so hard but it kind of just like melted into the snow always I'm not sure if they had particularly cold snow or particularly gloopy maple syrup or something I don't know babe I hate to break it to you but I think maybe she made it up no <laughs> poetic license no way no way um <laughs> And, you know, Harry Potter, she who shall not be named, was the author of these <laughs> series. But I love, I love the feasts 
in those books. They're great. Um, and how it changes through the year and how it kind of magically appears on the table. It's a wonderful vision that I had always thought that would be wonderful. And then to bring it back to, you know, serious adult literature, um, I've talked about this novel a lot and it isn't a meal, but Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin has an incredible scene of the two men eating cherries, walking down the street, throwing the pits at each other. And I just love that. I love, I think it's partially because I just love eating cherries out of a bag. Nothing excites me more than cherry season and kind of spitting the pits out. Um, And he captures that so vividly, but also that's a novel set in Paris and you feel the, the kind of French food along the margins in a really exciting way. So those are my examples. Um, what are yours? Yeah, cherries out of a bag are a really special thing. My um, my first one is Milk Fed, which is a novel I've recommended on the show before by Melissa Broder. And it is one of the most powerfully food-driven books I've ever read. And I think about it still often. Um, and I think it's partly because Broder is such a phenomenal writer of appetite. Like her books are always about appetite of some kind or another. And she writes sensuality and sex incredibly well. So it's not surprising that she's a brilliant writer of food, really, because these things are so connected. Mm. Um, But I would say, like, FYI, if you have struggled with disordered eating, then this book might be a bit triggering and this description of it might be a bit triggering. So just um, to, to be a little careful. Because the narrator, Rachel, is she's Jewish, but she's kind of lapsed and she is someone who has a very profoundly disordered relationship to food. She has an eating disorder and she's kind of all about restriction and all of those things. And then the catalyst for her kind of working through some of this or or reassessing it, I suppose, is that she meets this very beautiful, big Orthodox Jewish woman called Miriam who works at her local frozen yogurt shop. And Miriam's appetites are free. And she's free in her faith. She's free in her sexual appetites. She's free in her food appetites. And she like wants to feed Rachel all these delicious frozen yogurts and ice cream sundaes and everything. And Rachel, who keeps herself so tightly controlled, finds herself feeling overwhelming desire for Miriam. And the kind of relationship between these two women is what the book is really about and their sexual relationship. But also the more complicated subtexts are about faith and religion and what we allow ourselves and what we deny ourselves. So food becomes this really tight and powerful metaphor for freedom and control And it's also a book that explores the complete mad tyranny of diet culture and conventional heteronormative beauty standards. But I think there's also this really powerful strand that uses food as a metaphor for the kind of, I guess, spiritual satiety, right? Like there's this really deep question at the heart of this book, which is about how do you sate your spiritual hunger? How do you navigate spiritual hunger as well as sexual hunger, as well as your very real physical hunger? Um, And what does spiritual hunger mean in a culture that is largely secular or Mm. when you have a complicated relationship to God or no relationship to God whatsoever, but you still have this hunger inside you, which is essentially a hunger for answers of the spiritual variety. So yeah, it's a really brilliant, brilliant novel, not an easy read, complicated read sometimes, very sexy read at other times, but also the whole time I was reading it, I kept thinking, I just want to go and eat a giant ice cream sundae with Miriam and Rachel. <laughs> That's what I want to do. <laughs> the other one that came to mind very quickly was Crudo by Olivia Lang, which I just remember as being full of really delicious Italian meals, mm. eaten, kissed by Italian sunshine. And I, there is not a day in my life when I would not love to be eating delicious Italian meals kissed by Italian sunshine. And I think that is also partly to do with my reluctance to cook because in Italy you can eat so well without cooking a damn thing. <laughs> like three ingredients. That's all you need. 
There's something a little over the top in Crudo that's a little bit disgusting. Yeah, I think she yeah. Plays with that, which is interesting too, you know. Yeah, totally. And the other one that I actually have to just slide in at the end with is "Like Water for Chocolate" by Laura Esquivel, which I read in Spanish literally a hundred years ago. But I will never forget. So the main character Tita has to take care of her mother instead of falling in love. She has to forego her own kind of romantic and sexual life in order to take care of her mother. So the only time she can freely express herself is when she's cooking. And her recipes become basically like spells. And it is this magical realism in this novel. And it's in these moments of cooking the food that she makes and the recipes that she conjures where magical realism comes to light in actually in a profoundly powerful and relatable way because recipes are like spells. And as someone who is not a good cook, when I watch people who can cook well, I'm like, I feel like I'm watching a witch or a magician, you know, <laughs> like they are creating something divine out of things that I don't even know how you make a plum into a plum sauce for a piece of duck, right? Like that blows my tiny brain. Totally. So, and I think food is transformative. It is a kind of transmogrification. Anyway, in this novel, Good there word. is this description, thanks babe. There is this description <laughs> of Tita making a cake that has 170 eggs in it and it has her tears in it and it kind of has all of her frustrations in it. And then we learn in the novel that anyone who eats that cake is filled with her feelings of loss. And that to me is not magical realism. That is truth. Like I have eaten food that served as an emotional channel for the person who cooked it. And I have felt filled up with their feelings, whether those are feelings of love or feelings of anger or feelings of like distress. And I think that is something that's very powerful about how food can serve as a, like a, a conduit between human beings. Mm. And of course, fiction can really dig into that in a, in a beautiful way, especially fiction that's not tied to realism, actually. And of course, because our hunger and our appetites are so tied to our feelings. Completely. You know, things are so, you know, when I'm stressed, I can't eat. Or sometimes when I'm stressed, all I want to do is eat. Like when, I, when I'm feeling loved and safe, it, I have a very different relationship with food than when I'm feeling angry or sad. And it can make you feel those things too. I mean, it's it's incredibly evocative experience. Yeah, completely. I mean, let's do very quickly at the end here, nonfiction writing about food, cookbooks and nonfiction writing. It's not strictly about recipes. Like, do you have lots of cookbooks? Do you read nonfiction food writing? How do you feel about it? I have lots of cookbooks. I don't use them so often. They're definitely aspirational rather than, um, than you know, well-worn. Um, Highly and... relatable content, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> the one cookbook I have used a lot is the Green Roastington. So if Same you are here. someone who wants to get into cookbooks or doesn't cook that well or doesn't like cooking that much or needs a kind of simple approach, the Green Roastington great for weeknights, just ideas. And it's all in one tin and it's incredible. In terms of nonfiction writing about food, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, food writing is something people talk about. And when, when you say that, I think of writers maybe like Anthony Bourdain or MFK Fisher, um, neither of whom I've ever read, but a lot of people seem to admire who write about food, but it's not really recipes. It's sort of, as you say, it's like narratives around food or descriptions of food. And I admit, I don't really tend to pick those things up because I assume they are just going to be descriptions of food and not that narratively interesting. But I now realize I have no real reason for that bias and it's probably totally unfounded. But one of the things I have noticed just working in the industry is that in recent years, food writing really seems to have 
opened up beyond the realm of the the kind of straight white man like Bourdain, love him as I did in the television aspect at least. For instance, I really want to read Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, which is a memoir about the author's relationship with her mother, but also about Korean food. So I think there are some interesting things happening in the food writing space that I should probably engage with that I haven't yet. So how about you, Octavia? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think the boundaries between those things often collapse. Like I have a cookbook that somebody gave me, a Nigella Lawson cookbook, where it's written through narratively and the recipes are are embedded in the narrative. So it's really not like go to page 54 and find a plain recipe for whatever it is. It's, it's, It's totally steeped in her emotional relationship to the dishes in the book and how she cooks them. And it's a storytelling way of writing and then teaching you how to make the things. Yeah, I have no patience for that. Right, right. No, no, no. It's interesting because it really turns some people off. Yeah. I have really enjoyed it and I've been surprised how much I've enjoyed it. And I've made a couple of the recipes from it when I was feeling very free and easy with my time. And I enjoyed doing it and I enjoyed hearing her voice describing me, like telling me how to do it and everything. So, but it's definitely not a mode I want to use all the time when I'm cooking because I'm irritated and sometimes I'm often cooking in a hurry when I'm really hungry. I have this feeling sometimes where I'm like trying to get to the recipe and there's all this text about how somebody feels about the recipe and I'm like, ah, I don't have time for this. Just just (laughs) tell me like how many teaspoons of salt I need. Like get, stop telling me about your feelings. You are a Philistine. (laughs) (laughs) But also I agree with you that We seem to be in a moment of really exciting kind of boundaries dissipating between different genres and ways of thinking about food. And I think there are a few writers who are doing this brilliantly, like Ruby Tando, who's who's a cookbook writer, but she's also writes essays about food. And she's very much about democratizing the whole process of cooking and making affordable, easy to make things from your cupboards and very much the antithesis of the sort of extremely elaborate, quite snobby cookbooks that were a big thing in the 80s, right? Like the the, mm. the uptight dinner party cookbook. She's kind of the political opposite of that. And her writing is fantastic. And there's also a writer called Jonathan Nunn, who um, was the founder of Vittles, which is this really brilliant newsletter that publishes the kind of thoughtful food writing that is also cultural criticism and personal essay. And, you know, exactly what you're talking about with books like Crying in H Mart. Um, and very much trying to take uh, food writing out of the clutches of the macho white men um, and the kind of uh, sanctioned food critics in the broadsheets and stuff who are obviously only writing about a very particular kind of food. Whereas what Vittles is trying to do is write about food that is not already couched in a lot of um, financial status and all of that. Not the fancy restaurants, right? He's writing about Mm. restaurants in places like Wembley and, you know, Stratford and local restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, and looking at how they relate to the cultures around them. And it's really, really brilliant. And he's kind of platforming a lot of voices who wouldn't necessarily be platformed otherwise. Um, and uh, they, he just published a really fantastic book called London Feeds Itself, which is a collection of, of these essays. Really recommend it. Really, really re- recommend it. Cool. Um, I'll check it out. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to shout out, actually, is a book that has made me re- contextualize my relationship to cooking a bit, which is um, Rebecca Rebecca Mae Johnson's book, Small Fires and Epic in the Kitchen, which is really creative and clever and 
intellectual and also very bodily. And she kind of gets into this complicated tension between like gender and cooking, everything that that symbolizes. But she also, and the thing that I found the most powerful, she argues really that time spent cooking is time spent thinking and perceiving with the body. And that I'm interested in. I haven't finished it yet, but I, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's got me by the ghoulies in a good way. So yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah. And maybe it can deprogram some of those ideas about women in the kitchen as well. Absolutely. It's very much what she's trying to do, I think. And um, I'm excited by that because they, there are certain tenets of old fashioned feminism that don't serve us any longer at all and should be let go of, I think. So yeah, I'm into that. Awesome. Um, Well, good recs. Wrapped it all up. We (laughs) will be back in a minute to give you our cultural recommendations. Hello, here we are back to talk about some of the stuff we've done lately that Shock Horror is not reading and that we want to tell you about. So Carrie, please start things off. Okay, I will. My first recommendation is the film Tar. Oh my God. Have you seen it? I am so excited. No, I'm dying to see it. I'm so excited. Tell me everything. I'm really interested to know what you think of it. Um, And it was written and directed by Todd Field, who is also the director behind Little Children and In the Bedroom. He's only actually directed three films, which is so interesting. Um, And this is is his third. And apparently he wrote this film for Kate Blanchett and said he wouldn't have made it if she hadn't agreed to star in it. Wow. And whatever you think about this film, and I really think people are going to have a lot of feelings about this film, it is hard to deny that Kate is... Kate, I say as though I know her. <laughs> she's she's a star. You can't take your eyes off her. It's a remarkable performance and it's worth seeing just for that. But this is the story of Lydia Tarr, who is a, she's a famous contemporary composer and conductor, and she's about to record, she's the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, and she's about to record Mahler's Fifth Symphony, which is kind of a capstone of her career. But then her past begins to unravel. And I don't want to say more about that past, but it's a film that's engaging with Me Too in interesting ways. I liked that it didn't give easy answers. I had some questions about it. I wasn't sure what it was trying to say or whether it was trying to say anything. And I think when you're engaging with Me Too, that's tricky ground to trod. I thought it was too long. I wasn't sure about the ending. So I really want to have a lot of conversations with people about this film. But I think it's worth seeing for a number of reasons, not least because it looks and more more importantly, sounds fantastic and beautiful. And it's it's a film, it's so invested in classical music and the beauty of live performance. And, you know, I, I was riveted during these performances of various famous pieces of music during this film. It's it's pays so much attention to what is beautiful about hearing music. And I mentioned Kate Blanchett already, but she is just otherworldly. And there's something I was trying to think about, like, what is, what is it about her? And I think it's this weird combination of her acting being quite mannered, but it's also, it also feels incredibly authentic. And 
I think that's such a hard combination to pull off. So, mm. uh, so I'd really love to hear what you think of Tar when you see it, and I and I do recommend going and seeing it. I'm I've been very excited to see it ever since I saw the adverts, and also interestingly was like, hmm, I bet this is going to be a complicated one. Yes, it is. <laughs> it really is. Um, um, what's your first recommendation? Mine is a program that so. This was a show that John and I like had to restrain ourselves from binging. And I'm so pleased we did because it was worth watching an episode, you know, with some days in between. It's on BBC iPlayer at the moment. It's called Tokyo Vice. And it is so good. I cannot <laughs> tell you how good it is. It's like, it's got everything. It's got, it's got like complicated romance. It's got gangsters. It's got big cultural stories. It's got fight scenes. It's also got heart. Like it's just great. So it's about, and it's based on a true story. It's about this guy called Jake Adelstein, who's played by Ansel Elgort, who um, is an American who moved to Tokyo in the 1990s and tried to become a reporter at the main newspaper in Japan at the time where no white people had ever been reporters. And so he like learns fluent Japanese and he gets this job against all the odds. And basically he um, he's kind of this quite arrogant young American. And there's, I think it could do more with the tension between that, you know, like it, it, it maybe isn't quite as critical as I would like it to be of that kind of arrogant American mm. attitude. But um he basically gets into wanting to tell real news stories and the culture is not to do that. The culture is to be very reserved in the reporting of news and certainly not to write about the Yakuza, who are the gangsters who at that time had an enormous amount of control. And of course, he gets embroiled in this big Yakuza plot. And that introduces us to the character Sato, who if you watch it, Sato is like the coolest guy <laughs> I've ever seen on screen. And his character arc is is like wonderful and it's not particularly original it's you know this is a program that is dealing in tropes big time and there's the slightly sort of damn beautiful and damned woman who works as a hostess in a bar um but it's really great it's beautifully shot the lights it plays a lot with kind of reds and blues and the neon lights of tokyo at night but also because it's set in a time before smartphones and internet and stuff there's just constant tension because like if you didn't turn up to a meeting with someone you couldn't tell them you weren't coming, right? Or like if someone <laughs> disappeared, like it just really made me think about that. It made me think about how how high the stakes were before we could just find information mm. at our fingertips immediately. And actually, you know those those like um, adverts that tell you to turn your phone off in the cinema that are always like, don't let a mobile phone ruin your ruin your story or something. And it's 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 a cute little joke, but actually it's very accurate <laughs> when it comes to drama. I think. Um, yeah. So I really enjoyed being in this, you know, it's a real period piece and I really enjoyed being in that world. And there's going to be another series and I'm already excited by it. It's got, um, it's also got Ken Watanabe in it, who's a phenomenal actor. He does some of the best eyebrow acting I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, I recommend everybody watch it. What's next for you? My other recommendation is Six, the musical. Oh my God. <laughs> Which I saw a touring production of when I was in Boston recently, but it's currently on Broadway. It's currently on the West End. And I think there are other touring productions all over the world. So there are ways to see it, even if you're not in London or New York. So Six is the story of the six wives of King Henry VIII. And it's styled as a kind of singing competition. So there are only really six cast members 
Um, and the idea is they're all competing against each other, singing their songs about how it was the worst for them with Henry. And all of the queens are also styled after a different pop singer. So Catherine of Aragon is kind of like Beyonce. Um, Jane Seymour is kind of like Adele, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to admit, when I heard that setup, I was pretty skeptical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a musical theater purist. I It felt a little bit gimmicky to me. But I just enjoyed the show so much. It's incredibly fun. It's witty. The music is catchy. And it genuinely questions how we tell history, who gets to tell history, how we think about women in history and their roles in history without, you know, being a moralizing lesson. And I just loved the, and it's only 90 minutes long. It might only even be 80 minutes long. There's no intermission, which is incredible. So it's just, it's just a wonderful little confection of a show. Um, and I love the detail that it was actually written by two university undergraduates. And the first performance ever of it was at the Edinburgh Fringe. And then it just completely took off from there. So it feels kind of organic as well. That sounds really fun. That sounds like a like a genuinely really fun night out. Yeah, it is. And and also it was amazing because there were, I mean, there were mainly teen girls at the, the performance we went to and, and they already knew all the songs and they'd all been listening to it. And some of them were like dressed up and like cosplay about the, the musical. And it just made me so happy. It made me like happy to be surrounded by theater kids who'd like found their niche, who genuinely love something and treated it almost like a pop concert. You know, it was, yeah. it was really fun. Also just the power of live performance, right? Yes. When you when it's not been in our lives regularly for such a long time, it's really like, whoa. Yeah. It yeah, if exactly. It felt just like that. I was like, what is this feeling? Yes. That's why I was so honest about um about my neighbor Totoro. The last I know, show. understand it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's your last recommendation? Well, mine is another television program, actually, which is one I know that you uh, love already, which is the second series of White Lotus. Oh, yeah, um, baby. I'm enjoying it so much. I mean, Jennifer Coolidge, I would watch do anything at any point, anytime. She's just fabulous. But I think that, like, some of the things that felt a bit complicated about the first season, I feel like they listened. I feel like they responded, you know? And the second season... It sort of um, was set in Italy. So again, I get to look at delicious Italian food. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like it's kind of because it's not getting into complicated racial dynamics, which it was in the first season. And I don't know how well it handled those. This season, it is allowing itself to really dig into the grotesqueries of extreme wealth in in a more nuanced way, in a way. Um, And I think, I mean, we'll see where it ends up. We'll see who the dead body is because that will be the dead main body is Octavia. Oh, what? I'm an yeah. episode behind you. No, no, no. It's the in the first scene um, when it, I'm not giving anything away. It's literally the first scene when they find the dead body. Then the hotel manager is having a conversation with someone, and she says, "Actually, there are bodies." <gasps> oh my god! I, yeah, that passed me by. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing bodies, right? So, like, I think. The question of whether they listened to some of the very valid criticism of the first season will come down to who it is who's died and whose bodies are the recipients of violence, basically. Um, But so far, I'm enjoying it so, so much. Aubrey Plaza is doing an incredible turn, isn't she? Brilliant as the kind of 
dark, but actually truth-seeing outsider in a way. Um, and there's this brilliantly drawn relationship between these two couples, which is her and um, her partner, who's played by an actor called Will Sharp, um, who's actually English, and um, but not in the show. And this other couple, and the, the Aubrey Plaza, Will Sharp couple have just come into Extreme Wealth, but they're not from that world initially. And they're spending time with a couple who've been in that world for much longer. And the tensions between these things and like the relationships of of like, forced conviviality between two heterosexual couples when actually they have very little in common is like brilliant for dark humor. (laughs) And there's also two of my favorite characters in it are these two young sex workers who are just having an absolute riot running around this hotel trying to make money and tying everybody in knots. And it's really like, it's really brilliant farce. And, And this season, it's sort of presenting you with so many different characters to be like horrified and fascinated by at the same time that I'm enjoying it immensely. Yeah, I am really enjoying it. I have some niggles and I actually liked the first season better than the second season. Fascinating. Well, I think the comedy is a little broader in the season in a way that I don't think is that effective. And especially Jennifer Coolidge's character, some of the scenes, it's like they're dialing it up so much that it feels, I, I don't know, it just feels not that funny and kind of out of a different TV show. Interesting. And then I also think some have, I think that the like local Italian characters are really not as well drawn as the vacationing tourists. Yes. Well, so far that's true. Yeah. And, and I feel like it's, I, it could, it could have done a lot more with where these characters are than it does. Um, And, and I think maybe people don't notice that as much because it's like, they feel like it's okay to like have Italians be like kind of caricatures, but I feel like it could have been a lot richer. I know what you mean. I also am kind of receiving it as pure farce and therefore, because I don't think, I don't think that the rich people are particularly richly drawn. No, it's that's only true. a couple of them who you get more nuance from really the the two who are kind of outsiders but I see the majority of them as kind of caricatures in a way. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I say this, but I'm like loving every episode and actually I'm going to go watch it when we finish recording this. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All right, that's it. We've done it. Food feasting. Never more shall we speak about these things. (laughs) I think we probably will speak about them. I hope so. Oh, that was a joke. Sorry, you were being ironic. I was, I was, but don't worry. You're too honest for me sometimes. (laughs) I'm too earnest for everyone. Thank you. Bye.